you're here for the first time, no, this is not my normal voice. Yesterday, Jay said I sound like Batman. I think he was being gracious. I feel like I sound like Bane. Um, and uh, so you have to bear with me. I was sick all week, and we had our men's trip. And of course, if you know me, and there's a game going on or a lesson going on, I can't stop from talking. So probably did more harm than good, but I don't regret any of it. Uh, and so, and if you also know me, I will proclaim the gospel to my dying breath or my last breath, which you may see this morning. Another thing, too, we spent our entire weekend in 2 Timothy, and I'm going to try really hard not to teach 2 Timothy because I've been, I've been saturated with 2 Timothy for the past few days, but we are in Colossians, I promise. Uh, so I want to begin this morning with thinking about any good sermon, any effective ministry or effective discipleship begins with declaring who Christ is in the power of the gospel. And then following with, what does that mean for your life? These two things go hand in hand, and Paul is a great example of that in this letter to Colossae. Because you can't minister, you can't preach, or you can't disciple unless you know who Christ is and what he's done. And so that's where we were last week, in verses 15 through 20, and just quickly recapping this great uh, almost hymn of the excellencies of Christ. We first saw that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is eternal, the image of the invisible God. He is incarnate, the firstborn in creation, both man and God. He created all things, created everything. Was there anything made that he did not make? No. Everything in heaven and on earth and in the spiritual realm he made. All things were created through him and for him. He is the source of all creation, but he is also the object of all the praise and the attention of creation as well. He's before all things. He is first before all things were created. Not only did he create them all, he holds them all together. He sustains them, and he, and he will sustain them until he recreates them. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from among the dead, not just the firstborn of creation and being first in rank, first in prominence and in preeminence, but also first from the grave, that in his flesh many would rise to new life in him, and he'd be first in creation and first in new creation. He must be preeminent in all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He did this as the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. God, man, who took on flesh to reconcile flesh to himself. And then through him, this reconciliation will soon encompass all things in heaven or on earth. He will reconcile all things to himself and make all things new. And how did this happen? By making peace of the blood of the cross. And that is why the cross is so central to everything we do and everything we say and everything we proclaim because it was at the cross when sin and death were defeated, when the beginning of new creation began, when his kingdom came into this world. He ascended not long after and seated on high and our God who reconciles all things to himself is still doing that. People like Kelly and every one of us who have been redeemed, whether from the darkest depths or from simple beginnings, it is all for his glory, and he will one day bring all of those lost sheep home to the fold, and we will be with him forever. So that's where we pick up in our passage this morning in verse 21. Colossians 1, 21, we're going to read through 29. And you, 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord, it is only by your power working within us that we can do anything. Apart from you, we can do nothing. You are first in all things. You are creator in all things. You are sustainer of all things. You are redeemer of all your saints. You are the purpose of our gathering, the purpose of our praise, the purpose of our proclamation. Everything we do, we do unto you and to your glory. And it is only by your strength that I can continue this morning or that any of us can continue through the rest of our week. Lord, let us never lose sight of our very breath, our very voice, our very mind, our very hands are completely dependent on you. You can take them at any moment. You've given to us, given them to us, and let us be good stewards of everything you've given us. We are, you have entrusted your word to us. You've entrusted your church to us. Let us hold tightly and hold fast to your word. Let us care for one another well. Let us invest in the household of faith that we may be presented mature before you at the day of your coming or the day when you take us home. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, we learn the purpose of of Christ's work. Paul told us last week who Christ is and what he's done. And this, and this purpose, he did all of this reconciling so that his saints might be presented holy. They might come from aliens and evil ones to being blameless and above reproach. And Paul explains gospel ministry as being entrusted with the gospel in order to serve the church. And I took this to heart. When asked to come to this little church, I realized this week, this is the first sermon I preached here almost four years ago. And in this text into a little struggling church who was looking for direction, I wanted to encourage them in who Christ is and what he'd done and what he's done and who they are, if they are indeed in him. And this is still our motivation and still our desire to this day to proclaim who Christ is and what he's done and follow Paul's pastoral example. And I want to walk through that this morning. Because if we recognize who Christ is and what he's done, then the word of God is applied to the people of God in its proper context, understanding the source and its foundation. 
And we still seek to do that today. We will proclaim Christ and we will follow what Paul shows us because Paul's apostolic ministry is a model for our pastoral ministry. The way Paul teaches and his doctrine is the basis for our doctrine, but also his pastoral model, the way he cares for the church, the way he prays for the church, the way he encourages and challenges the church. And as pastors, that is still our desire today. So from this text, I want to, I kind of created a definition of pastoral ministry that I think is helpful. From this text we're going to walk through this morning, I would say that pastoral ministry is stewarding the hope of the gospel and stewarding those reconciled through the gospel in order to present them mature in Christ. We don't have to go far to see what it means to shepherd God's people. Stewarding the hope of the gospel and stewarding those reconciled through the gospel in order to present them mature in Christ. And maybe even a more succinct definition, pastor, steward of the word of God, steward of the people of God in the power of God. Steward of the word of God, steward of the people of God in the power of God. Simple. I'm going to defend that here this morning. And so the first thing we're going to look at in this first section is who is ministry to? Verse 21 through 23, reconciled wretches, that's us. In this, you've got a before and an after and a continuing before. Verse 21, you once were evil, wicked, but you now are reconciled. And in the continuing command, you must continue in the faith. This second session, what does ministry consist of? Stewardship of the word to the saints. This last section, what is the purpose of ministry? Why do we do all these things? Why do we need to know all this? Because the goal is to present those same saints mature before Christ in his power. So we've got a lot to cover. I'm going to jump right in to verse 21. I'm amazed I have not coughed yet. Pray I can keep going. Uh, verse 21, and you, and you, there's this transition from the sun that we focused on last week, from the sun to the saints, and now you. Let me get your attention. This is who Christ is, but I want to remind you of who you are. The gospel is this glorious bright light in the reality of the hopeness of the darkness of our own fallen condition. In order to understand the gospel, you must understand how wicked and evil you are. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind. This is an enemy mind. This is a mind that has hatred in it toward toward the one it opposes. You are aliens and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Because you once were aliens, you are standing before a just and holy God with, with your fist in the air, shaking your fist at him. You weren't just apathetic to the gospel. You weren't just indifferent to the gospel. You're antagonistic to the gospel. You're indignant toward the God of the universe. You were evil and hostile in mind. You were standing as his enemy. In your full depravity, you are children of wrath. You're under the lordship of the prince of the power of the air who wants nothing but to remove Christ from his throne. That is who you once were. If it was up to you, you'd still be there. I'd still be there. But look what God has done. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's pastoral ministry uh, through the lens of Paul. So we're going to spend a lot of time in, in Paul. And I would encourage you as we're going through Colossians, spend time in Ephesians, the, the sister letter. There's a lot of similarities there. So we read from Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. If you don't know where it is, go two books back in your Bible. But I want to go there again in, in chapter 2. Because Paul 
kind of unpacks this same idea, and you once were. He uses it in stronger language at the beginning of chapter 2. And then he talks about how God uses that at the end of, or the middle of chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. As Christians, we can become callous. We can look at look what these evil worldly people do. That was the same spirit that you were acting in not so long ago. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Before we get to the good news, I want to continue with the bad news. Skip down to verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated, same words he used in Colossians, from the commonwealth of Israel's and strangers to the wealth, or excuse me, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in this flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. The Jew-Gentile issue is not as strong in Colossae as it was in Ephesians, so it's emphasized here in Ephesians. But the same message applies in Colossae. By abolishing the law of, of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man. In place of the two, so making peace. There's a lot of implications for the peace from last week. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is gospel ministry. Look at the language here. And he came, still speaking about God, preach peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. When the gospel goes out, it is used through human instruments, but it is actually God proclaiming it. God is working through his people, in his people. God is the one who is drawing them in through this message of reconciliation. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to Gentiles here, primarily uh, for the Gentile audience in Ephesus, also speaking to us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is what God has done. It's the, the, the greatest before and after picture. Now we get into verse 22. It's who you once were. That's who you were, but look at who you are now. Now, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now he has reconciled you. The reconciliation that Paul proclaimed last week, he has reconciled all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. And by faith, that means you. You are in the reconciliation of the eternal son taking on flesh. He came to earth to redeem you and me and everyone throughout history who has ever been called by his grace. And he reconciled through his blood. The means for this reconciliation. And Paul uses different language, but it's essentially the same concept. He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. He truly had a body. Reconciliation and, and propitiation must be in kind. The flesh of Christ reconciles the flesh of his own. In his body, humanity had to be reconciled by humanity. Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And this is just shorthand. 
for death, burial, and resurrection, propitiation, atonement, everything that happened in Christ's death. The eternal Son became the incarnate Savior. Peace through the cross. And what does the death of Christ accomplish? What is his goal in this reconciliation? In order, in order to present you holy, blameless, above reproach before him. This word present is a legal term. It's when you present someone before a judge so that a proclamation or a, a decision may be made. This is what Christ is doing. He's, he's preparing you to be presented before a judge and a righteous judge. But there's a certain way he's going to present you. Holy, blameless, above reproach. Holy, set apart from the world, belonging to God, no longer alien, no longer set apart from him, but you are set apart to him. Blameless, your sins forgiven, now spotless, now no condemnation. And above reproach, free from accusation, no charge. I think this is important for us to remember because many of us wrestle with the difficulty of our own sin and still walking in the depravity of the flesh and the curse of this world, but we don't remember, we don't really understand what it means to be above reproach in Christ. And Paul helps us understand that in Romans 8. If you turn to Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Pretty much anything we need an answer to, we can go to Romans 8 or 9. We had a funny discussion in the, in the guys' trip. Uh, Jay's like, when are we going to preach through Romans 8? Someone says probably two years after we start Romans 1. You're <laughs> probably right. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what it means to be above reproach. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If you are justified in Christ before a holy God, who could ever bring a charge against you? This is what Paul means by being above reproach. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How can we be above reproach? Christ died. He rose again, that same power that rose, rose him from the grave, rose us from our darkness and is still interceding for us. Who can bring a stronger charge than that? And that's what Paul throws in here in verse 35. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's interceding for us. Shall tribulation? Of course not. Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Nothing. His reconciliation is in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach, giving us spiritual legal, and an ethical standing before him that cannot be shaken, cannot be moved, cannot be taken from him. I said a moment ago, this is the greatest before and after picture. You were dead. There was no life in you. I'm starting to think of a good parallel for this, and so many things came to mind, and I don't know why I couldn't get it out of my head, but Pinocchio. I'm going to get there, trust me. So um, you think Pinocchio is, he's, it seems like he's alive, right? He talks and he, and he thinks and he's this, this, this little wooden robot, but Geppetto's pulling the strings. There's no life in him. It seems like he's alive, but he's not. And that's really what it is apart from Christ. It seems, I'm, I'm really living, right? I'm really going through life, but there's no heartbeat in you. There, there's no life. Your strings are being pulled by the prince of the power of the air. 
But a Savior came to make you a real boy so that you can live for him and be his boy and that you be his son and that you will have life in him. Amen. And why does he do all that? What is the purpose of all that? Look at the end of the verse. Holy and blameless, above reproach, before him. He does all this work in us for himself, for his glory. Think about that. He came to earth, took on flesh, died, was tortured, did this for you, but ultimately for himself, to present us before himself. The reconciliation of the cross prepares us to be presented for himself. The most selfless act was the most self-centered act. And it is not a sinful thing when Christ says, I'm doing this for me. And we often forget that he does this for himself and, and we think that we can somehow screw this up. But if he's doing it for himself, who are, are we to undermine his plans? And we don't often remember that he did all this so that he could present us before himself. So when we stand before the great white throne of judgment one day, this is how he sees us, holy and blameless and above reproach because of his blood, because of what he's done at the cross. How often do we think about that? How often are we in awe of what he has done for us, for his own glory? And he continues in our continuing, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting. Now this verse causes a lot of people a lot of trouble. We may tend to read this pessimistically. Well, if to us many glass half empty people well, if that means you could somehow, and I've read many commentators who say that, well, Paul is saying here that uh, unless you continue, your, your salvation is not complete. You need to work through your, your own salvation. It's all on you after the point of putting initial faith in Christ. But that's not how Paul uses it. We read it with doubt, but Paul says it with confidence. If indeed, he's like, as if I am sure you continue. At the same time, we need to be reminded of what God has done in us so that we continue in him. Because at the same time, we know the saints will persevere. They must persevere. And they must be encouraged too. So this is an encouragement. Because in the same letter, he tells them, look at chapter 2, verse 5. He's rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He has no doubt in the firmness of their faith. He's not saying that it's up for grabs or that something they could do could change the, the faith that the Holy Spirit has worked within them. But it's a challenge to continue in the faith, not continue in your faith as if it's subjective, but, you, but the faith, objective, the content of the gospel, the message that your faith is in, continue in that because there's false teachers in Colossae who want you to put your faith in other things and they want to, to break the solid ground that you, you stand on. And those who are truly reconciled will continue. But those who don't continue we're never of the faith to begin with. That's what John says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might become plain that they are all not of us. This is what people don't understand. Well, okay, you must continue in order to earn your salvation. No, you continue proving your salvation. So this is, this is what's going on here. It's just a pastoral challenge Paul kind of says the same thing at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul's telling them to continue. He's, this is an exhortation. This is an encouragement to continue in the faith. And this is the blend between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. We see this perfectly in Philippians 2. Paul also tells us at the same time, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You must really do this. You must really come before the Lord with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you for his will and for his good pleasure. At the same time, we don't understand how God's sovereignty is for all things to be presented before Christ. But there is a responsibility within us. And and Paul works through this tension in almost every one of his letters. And that's what we're seeing here. Being stable, being steadfast, being immovable, not shifting. Because in the gospel there is true hope. The real hope that you heard. And the gospel that you heard is preached indiscriminately. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. The two things that we've seen so far in chapter 1 that are consistent. The excellencies of Christ. The preeminence of Christ in all things. And the gospel for all nations. The gospel that is working in all creatures under heaven. Paul says here, and of which I became a minister. The word minister here, it's not some broad title. Diakonos, from where we get deacon means servant. Paul, a servant of this, the gospel message. Paul is a servant of the gospel. Doesn't use any flowery terms here, just simple, humble language. I became a minister of this. Gospel ministry is sharing in Christ's reconciliation and this message of hope under all creation. And last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5 where we become a part of that ministry of reconciliation. Because if you have been reconciled, you are now a part of God's ministry of reconciling more to himself. And because Paul understands the beauty of this, the reconciliation that happens in his people, that's how he can rejoice in all times. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for this sake. Don't let the section headings um, interrupt the the reading of this text. Because I know that he is reconciling people to himself, because I know that you were dead and now you're alive, and I became a minister of that message, I will rejoice in my suffering, because my suffering is worth it. He's not suffering for suffering's sake. He's not a masochist. He's suffering for your sake, because he knows what Christ is doing in you. And when we know that the calling and the reward is great, we don't mind the pain. We'll do this in any area of our lives. We will push ourselves to the point of exhaustion for some goal that we have. But Paul puts us in proper perspective. I rejoice in every difficulty because it is for the sake of the gospel and what God is doing in his people. And so, of course, in one text, I have to deal with two of the most difficult statements that Paul makes. Certainly the most too difficult in this entire letter, but this one is probably the most difficult in most of the writings of, of Paul. He goes on to say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Good, we got that. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if you just read over this and didn't think anything of it, you can plug your ears for the next five minutes. But if you're like me and you read this, it's like, what could possibly be lacking from Christ? Because last week, we just said that Christ is lacking nothing. He needs nothing. But here, Paul is clearly saying, and and I've spent countless hours over this. It, it, It means lacking. And what does this mean? We don't really know exactly. There are 
great debate over what this means. There are many different theories, and I don't want to get into all that, but I want to get into what we know for sure. So first, this word affliction here is not the typical word for um, Christ's uh, passion or, or, or suffering on, on the cross. So we know that there's not something lacking in what Christ has done because he couldn't have made peace, real peace, real completeness, real wholeness in the cross, like we saw in verse 20, if there was something lacking in, what, in, in Christ's propitiation and his, his sacrifice. Also, we know that we couldn't be reconciled, like we've seen in verse 22, if there's something lacking in what Christ has done. But in some way, in God's plan, there's more suffering that needs to happen. And I think Paul's own conversion uh, gives us an indication here. If you look at Acts chapter 9, because <clears throat> we want to make sure when we reach a difficult passage in Scripture that we know Scripture does not contradict itself, so we must weigh it against other Scripture to help give us some perspective. I think the key to understanding this is in Paul's own conversion. Chapter 9. Look what happens, um, verse 4. Love to hear moving pages. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now hold on. Where is Jesus at this time? Anybody know? He's ascended. He's not on earth. He's saying, why are you persecuting me? Paul didn't persecute Jesus. Who's Paul persecuting? He's persecuting the saints. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He's, he's persecuting the followers of Christ. So there's a link here. When, when Christ's followers are persecuted, you are persecuting Christ. And when Christ's followers suffer, there's a suffering that is attached to Christ. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. By persecuting the followers of Christ, by afflicting afflictions on the, suffer, on the followers of Christ, there is a connection to Christ. He is actually being persecuted. He is actually being afflicted. Not that we can bring harm to him. But then he gives a challenge to Paul. Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. Now we get this part of Paul's ministry. If you skip down a few more verses. Goes to the house of Ananias who's terrified. He's like, this guy's killing Christians. I don't want to let him in my house. But look what Jesus tells him. Verse 15. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of my ministry to carry my name before the Gentiles. This is why Paul takes this ministry to the Gentiles as ministry of reconciliation so seriously. But look what else he says. And kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He must suffer. Christ himself says there's something he must do. You must suffer. This is part of my, my plan. Something is lacking Something else must be done in order for my plan to be continued, and it's your suffering. You're going to suffer for me. And Paul must suffer as part of the witness, as part of the gospel to, to go out, and it becomes a great part of his ministry. Um, and it becomes a part of us as well. You look at, again, 2 Corinthians 1, another part of uh, Paul's great letter of comfort to the church in Corinth after they get their act together from 1 Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians uh, go a few books to your right, if you don't know where it is. Uh, just chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in, the, in Christ's sufferings, 
so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. There's this link between the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of his people. And so there is something that Christ suffered for our redemption. We can never add to that. There's nothing we can do toward that. But for our sanctification and for the reconciliation of more, suffering must happen to the saints. But suffering is not the end in and of itself. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Christ, the suffering servant, his servants suffer as well, and their servants after them. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Christ's life and ministry was one of suffering. Our life and ministry will be one of suffering, but it's ultimately comfort because the final peace has been made at the cross. And Paul declares at the end of Galatians, don't feel bad for him, and imitating his Lord in Galatians 6.17, he says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Literally, he talks about his stripes and his, and his beatings. He, bear, he bore on his own body the afflictions of Christ. He calls them the very marks of Jesus. So there is something that Paul did that continued the ministry of Christ and the very marks of it were on his body. So hopefully that makes sense. And if you didn't read that passage that way, you can take your fingers out of your ears now. Um, verse 25. So this, this continues. Um, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Um, oh yeah, one more thing, that Christ gave his body um, for his body, the church, and now Paul gives his flesh, so there's probably some, some play on words here, body and, and flesh, that what we do in our physical bodies actually has an, impl- an implication in the, the, the spiritual realm. He imitates his Lord. He bears the mark of Christ, or the marks of Jesus, for the sake of the church, of which I became a minister. Second time he says this. He's a minister of the message of the gospel. He's a minister of the people of God. So he's a minister of the word of God and of the people of God. This is how Paul sees himself, and he sees this as a stewardship, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. And this is the pastoral charge. We're given to be stewards of God's word. We're also to be given uh, stewards of God's people. And so we understand stewardship uh, in the, the context of our our possessions, yes, we must steward what God has given us, but we also must steward the treasures and the words and the people that God has given us. This is a real strong emphasis in our men's trip this weekend. Guard the good deposit that has been given to you. Guard the message of the gospel that has been given to you. Entrust it to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This pastoral charge is given to be a steward of what God has given to them. And you may not be an apostle, you may not be a pastor, but we should see this ourselves as this as well. We are given a stewardship. The gospel that has been given to us has been entrusted to us, that it may bear fruit. This, this good deposit should bear interest. We being ministers of this reconciliation in order that more might be reconciled, that God's people might continue to come home. And this was given to Paul, and it was given to us for you. Stewardship, given to Paul for you. Why? To make the word of God fully known. When we think of the word of God, it's easy. 
Many people love to pick and choose just the verses that they like, but to make the word of God fully known, the full counsel of God, all of it. Not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that make us comfortable, but especially the parts that make us uncomfortable because that is where we grow. And this is why in pastoral ministry the expository teaching and expository ministry is so important, that you have the full counsel of God. There's such a temptation to try to make creative sermon series and to try to inject yourself into the text. But in order to make the word of God fully known, you have to teach the full counsel of God. Old and New Testaments, prophets and epistles, poetry and prophecy, teaching all of these things. Because when the word of God is fully known, the saints are full in him. There's a fullness in the word of God that is needed for the fullness of the saints. And what is that fullness? That fullness is a mystery to those in ages past, a mystery that was hidden. In Paul, the word mystery kind of means a, a person or truth that would have remained unknown had God had not revealed it. There's a mystery that would have remained unknown had God had not revealed it. And what is that mystery? Back in Ephesians, he gives us that, a definition of that mystery. Ephesians chapter 3. Look at all the similarities here in this sister letter in, in Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, the Gentiles, he's doing it for their sake, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Sound familiar? How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as he said in Colossae, Colossians, as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That is the mystery that was hidden before. Now, that same mystery that was unknown to those before is now revealed to the saints through the Holy Spirit. How amazing is that? That the mystery of the gospel the veil that was over so many previous generations now through the Holy Spirit is revealed to his saints, to his people. His, his saints possess it to be ministers of it so that we might make it known. Every time we're declaring the gospel, we're declaring a mystery now made known. Hey, let me tell you a secret. Let me tell you something that people throughout history have longed to see, that the angels in heaven look down at and wonder at, that the God of the universe called this little scraggly uh, nomadic people out of paganism to himself. And if that wasn't enough, the same God who saved that little people thought that it wasn't, it wasn't good enough that his name be glorified by them, that his name would be glorified by every tongue, tribe, and nation under heaven. That is the message that we proclaim. That is the message of pastoral ministry. That's why we emphasize God's word here. It's sad when the Bible becomes one competing voice among many in the culture. That's why so often, every chance we get, we're gonna apply scripture to the problems of the world, to the voices of the world, that one voice would be made known above all else, that one would be proclaimed louder than any other, that, that one would rise above all other because this is the mystery which God has revealed to his people. And this, in our day and in Colossae, this is how you keep the false teachers astray or away. You make the word of God fully known and you declare it to them in its fullness there's nothing lacking, nothing needed. There's nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away. There is a protection for God's people. He has revealed it to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among 
the Gentiles are the riches and glory of this mystery. To them, the word is God. The word of God is no longer mysterious. It is real in Christ. To them, God chose. You get God's election of people and God's election of revelation. To them, this is a word of God to the people of God. And let's be real here for a moment. This is not for those who are, who are not united in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you're reading someone else's mail. You know the words. You can put the sentences together, but you don't know the person. You don't know the context. The Spirit is not in it working in you. This is a, these are letters written to God's people for the sake of his people. But when the Spirit gives you eyes to see, the mystery, the fog that was in front of your eyes before has made it clear to you because the Spirit is teaching you. The Holy Spirit teaching the Holy Spirit. God speaking to his people. For the nations, for us, we are Gentiles. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is glorious. To whoever he's made it, to whoever God has made it known. And what is the this mystery made known. What are these riches of glory, the riches of God? We see glory twice here. What is so glorious? This mystery, which is Christ in you. That is glorious. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the sustainer and reconciler of all things, Christ in you. This is to embolden the church. These false teachers have nothing to give you. The eternal God has come for you. He is in you. He, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is the hope of glory. It is the essence of the already not yet. Already Christ is in us. And at the same time, it is the hope of our future and eternal glory. We can look forward with confidence because we have Christ today in confidence. This is the word of God fully known, the mystery revealed from all ages, Christ in you. And how do we know? You ask. Romans 8, I tell you. Romans 8, look at verse 9 and 11. 9 through 11. Same thing, but in more detail here. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Christ in you, it's why he had to send his Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the mystery. This is amazing. God sent his son to die for you. The son sent his spirit to live in you, to preserve you, to present you before the father, holy and blameless and above reproach. This is what we are ministers of. This is what we are entrusted with. This is the stewardship to God's people. I feel so sad for people who have a gospel that is God wants you to have a better life now. God wants you to have a better car. God just wants you to stop crying about this one particular issue. Or God is just wanting to, to give you some nice little pat on the back. This is so much bigger, so much grander, so much greater. And we should never lose the weight of this. Because this is set against the false hopes that the false teachers then and the false teachers now give. Anything short of Christ and his glory 
and his spirit in us who preserves us for eternal life. There's a false and gospel that falls short. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Why? Christ is the basis for all of our preaching and teaching. He is our hope. He is the only one who can create the world and recreate the world. He is the only one who can reconcile you. He is the only blood that is pure enough. Him we proclaim. There is nothing else, no other gospel. This is why Paul is so emphatic here. Because when the false teachers come into Colossae and they tell you, wait, you you Christians are doing good as you are. We've got something more. We've got something better. There is nothing better. Him we proclaim and him only. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. Him we proclaim. What else could we possibly preach? Warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom. Um, Before we go forward, last week we said to define our alls. We're working through Christ. Are we talking about all of us go to the store or all things? Christ created all things. What we miss here in, in the English, but is emphatic in the Greek, is in each one of these mentions, it's, it, it's all men. Um, so let me read it more literally. Warning all men and, in, and teaching all men with all wisdom that we might present all men mature in Christ. The same alls that we saw in 15 through 20. Christ is, is, is in all things. Christ is all things to his people. We also need to define this all. We're talking about all men, all people everywhere. We're still in the context of the church, still in the context of the saints. Christ is proclaimed to all men, all mankind, every tongue, tribe, and nation. There is no partiality for the gospel. If you are in Christ, we teach you, we warn you in order to present you. Warning, this word means instruction, admonishing, correcting. This is a good thing. We need to warn people about their sins and about their destructive behavior so that they may mature. It's a loving thing to warn someone. And teaching so that they may, they may learn. We warn all men. We teach all men. Disciples learn and grow in all wisdom. So at the same time, the message of the gospel, it corrects and it directs. It is the rod and the staff. It is rebuke and it is encouragement. So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This word present comes up again. Christ goal in ministry is that he may present you to himself holy and blameless and above reproach and our goal in ministry is that we present the mature in Christ and so Paul continues the ministry of Christ of presenting his saints before him now Christ takes care of our nature and our justification and our standing but as shepherds and stewards we have a responsibility and our sanctification and our growth. This, this word mature here means complete. It means perfect, lacking nothing. It's our aim as pastors. This is pastoral ministry. This is the goal. We present all the saints. Mature, perfect, lasting, lacking nothing. And this, to me, is a great comprehensive summary of pastoral ministry. Proclaiming Christ Warning and teaching in order to present mature in Christ. That's pastoral ministry. Proclaiming Christ. Warning and teaching that we might present mature in Christ. That's why we do everything. There's so many other rabbit trails and distractions that that, that we can get into. This is the goal. 
The goal of the cross was to reconcile us to himself. The goal of ministry in the Christian life is to stand before Christ mature when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the charge that I feel, that we feel as pastors. Gospel ministry is this this rhythm that we see throughout this passage, making the word of God fully known, to make Christ known, which gives the glory, uh, excuse me, the hope of glory. It's the basis for our ministry so that everyone may be fully mature in Christ. For this I toil. This is what I toil for. This is why I'm in jail. This is why they beat me and stoned me. This is why they hated me. For this I toil. And I tell you as your pastor, for this I toil. And I know I can speak for Deshaun and Jesse as well, and I know that they bear the same weight. For this we toil. For this we talk to you late in the night. For this we, 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 we cry with you or walk through your sins with you or in, encourage you in your frailties. Maybe not to the point of Paul, but this we struggle for, and I'm glad to do it. Paul has devoted his life to this. And he struggles. For this I toil, struggling. This, this word is, is the root of where we get the word agonize from. For this I agonize. Gospel ministry is hard if you're doing it right. You agonize for the maturity of people. You want them to be presented before Christ. You want them to know him in fullness so that they can have true hope. The hope this world cannot offer. The hope that these false gospels cannot offer. Gospel ministry is investing in eternal souls and a heavenly crown that does not perish. It is worth struggling for. It is worth agonizing over. It is worth all the pain because the reward is greater than anything that we'll ever gain in this earth or anything that can ever be taken from us on this earth. And how does Paul keep struggling? How does he keep agonizing with all of his energy? How can anyone do anything? How can pastors do anything? How can any one of us serve or minister or care through pe- for people in his energy working in us? Nothing in and of ourselves. If it was up to us, we would still be Pinocchio. We'd be dead with our strings being pulled but he breathed life into us that we may live. How does anyone do anything in ministry, his energy? How do we accomplish anything? Because he powerfully works within us. It's a sad stat, but every month in this country, more than 2,000 pastors leave the ministry. And I've known some of them. And I would say confidently, the reason pastors fail and leave the ministries because so many of them are trying to do it in their own strength. So many of them think that they have to do it. This is one thing I was convicted of early on and a great lesson. I cannot save anyone. I cannot convince anyone into the kingdom. I cannot sanctify anyone. I cannot bring people in the door. I cannot bring people to salvation. I cannot bring people to anything. I am called to declare the hope of glory. I am called to proclaim Christ, the gospel. Teach and warn those given to me. Be a good steward of what God has, has given to me. And there, there is a freedom and there is a peace. <clears throat> was, I was praying for his strength this morning when my voice sounded worse than this. And right now the guys in this church, we are tired and we are beat up and bruised. Some of us literally from, from the, the, the weekend and sickness and all this stuff. It is only in his strength that we continue. It is only in his energy that we are here this morning. 
So in conclusion, from the work of Christ and the example of Paul, the gospel continues. From age to age, the same message, the same Holy Spirit by the same message and same means. Christ proclaimed faithful service, the riches of the glory of God to saints. As pastors, we're stewards of the word of God, stewards of the people of God by the power of God. And this ministry of the word of God and for the people of God go together. The latter, or excuse me, uh, the former serves the latter. The, word of, the ministry of the word of God serves the people of God. That's why it is so important. Because you, when you make Christ fully known, it is the basis for all growth and all maturity and all glory going to Christ. And this is what we toil in, proclaiming, warning, and teaching in order to present and mature in Christ. What a ministry of reconciliation. If you have been reconciled in Christ, you are ministers of that reconciliation, servants of this gospel in many different capacities in many different ways. But we all share in this for our Savior because his blood on the cross was to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before himself. Him we praise and to him be all glory and honor forever. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for reconciling us we praise you for this ministry. We praise you for the hope of glory. We praise you that you knew we could not do it, so you did it for us. And you knew we could not continue it, so you sent your spirit to continue in us that we might continue in your power to the praise of your glory. Lord, give us peace in you. Help us rest in your finished work your ministry on our behalf. Help us to be emboldened in our ministry. I pray for pastors in this church, pastors in church at Heathrow, and so many faithful brothers around the world who are proclaiming and laboring in the gospel, agonizing to present the saints mature. May you strengthen us and may you surround us with saints who desire the same thing, mature saints who encourage us, who challenge us when needed, that we all, as the body, may grow in our head, Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.